My name is Amy. I have the privilege of serving on the worship team, and today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, from the NIV. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's word. Thank you, Amy. Thought we'd give you a gentle passage of scripture to read this morning. In the midst of just a, another week, as we reflect on all the, the darkness and evil that is in the world, and we also deal with it in our own lives personally and locally, the question of what it means to be a faithful presence becomes all the more important. And what we learn in this series that part of being a faithful presence is learning to identify and expose counterfeits. So let's pray this morning, whether you've been around the church for a long time or you're brand new and you're exploring Christianity. Let me lead us now in prayer that God would move in our hearts, change us, help us to identify what is true and what is false, and that we would live in the truth and the life that it brings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You have made yourself known to us that we might be with you, that we might be used by you in this world. God, we pray that you would, by your truth, grant us the ability to discern between truth and lies, what is authentic and what is a counterfeit. Lord, we know the stakes are so high. Lord, show us if in any way we are trusting in counterfeits, things that claim to set us free but never will. And God, help us to be a faithful presence representing your love and your truth in a dark world. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? For those here who do not yet know you, we pray that today they would come to know you and be set free. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Spy novels are all about professional counterfeits. And when one author, Quentin Rowan, released his spy novel, Assassin of Secrets, it was initially met with glowing reviews in the press. They said the author's intimate knowledge of the internal conflict of a spy seemed spoke so spot on. And he says in his novel, like ordinary liars, spies live in panic, knowing that the truth about themselves may be discovered at any moment. However, it turns out that Quentin, the author, might have been writing about his own life because five days after the book's release, it became clear that his novel was almost entirely plagiarized. All the readers and writers of spy novels 
who were familiar with the genre quickly detected the book's plagiarism. They informed the publisher who swiftly recalled the thousands of copies released and issued an official apology. These writers and these readers, they were so acquainted with the real thing that they were able quickly to identify a counterfeit. See, counterfeits work so well because they mimic the real thing. But in doing so, they actually distort its value in the process. Imagine for a moment a wave of counterfeit bills flooding our country. It would create mass confusion. The counterfeits would spread rapidly and at the same time threaten the real currency. And in many ways, that is true of when we talk about counterfeits within the church. What if the greatest threat to the potential salvation of many did not actually come from outside of the church, but from within the church? What if the greatest threat to your own spiritual health today, if you're a follower of Jesus, were not all the things out there that are anti-gospel, blatantly against Christ, but counterfeit gospels, pretending to bring you life when in fact they will never deliver. This, friends, is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with when he writes his letter to Titus, who's leading a number of churches in ancient Crete, part of the Roman Empire in the first century, and he was dealing with counterfeits. If you've ever been cheated by a counterfeit, then you can begin to feel as Paul did when he was writing this portion of the letter at the end of chapter 1. And it raises questions for us to answer. How do we detect counterfeits? How do I know if I'm believing in a counterfeit? And what if we were preaching counterfeits? One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon is this on discernment. He said, discernment is not only knowing the difference between right and wrong, it is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Things that have a little bit of truth in there so that it resonates, but it's also mixed with a lie. Well, just like those readers and writers detected a false spy novel that was originally praised for being an original, counterfeit gospels always have a little bit of truth that makes them seem palatable, but they are nonetheless mixed with lies. And Paul's letter here equips us to detect them and shows us how to respond. And it is vital that we do because it's not sales that are at stake. It is souls that are at stake. And the first thing we need to know is this. Counterfeits are everywhere. Counterfeits are everywhere. As Paul issues his warnings to Titus and subsequently to the churches that he leads, it becomes clear that there are a variety of counterfeit gospels back then, just as there are a variety of counterfeit gospels today. Now, the way in which we use the gospels, the word so often is associated with the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the account of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ. But in common vernacular, the word gospel is also used to simply convey good news of what you need that's really going to save you. 
the thing that you really need in your life. And in that sense, there are many modern gospels. And what I want you to notice, there are three different categories here, and he critiques them all because there are counterfeits in every part of culture, traditional, progressive, and everything in between. The first is the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping. In speaking about those who would justify themselves through their own religion and moral effort, Paul writes in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul here is addressing one very specific group that he calls the circumcision group, which was shorthand for a group of people within the Jewish community who insisted that in order to be saved, you had to keep certain rules of the law. Yes, we know about Jesus. Yes, we know that he's the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. But to really be saved, it's more than just believing in him. You have to keep the whole law. You have to keep very specific aspects of the law. And that will lead you to salvation. It's the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping. Yes, yes, there's Jesus. But here's the good news. You can do all these other things and that will ensure that you are really saved. So in this view, salvation comes through willpower. And it is appealing to many of us because for those of you who like to keep your lists, it appears to be manageable. Some of you are list people. You have a list about everything. You're making a list right now in church. You're making a list about your household. You're, you're making a list about what you need to do this week. You're making a list for your spouse, and it's long. And when you get to the end of the day, you fulfill your list, and you have a sense of self-congratulation, like, I have completed my list, and all in your household are like, we praise you, O list keeper. You have one list to rule them all. You keep it. There, there's a sense of of accomplishment in that. And so this whole gospel of rule keeping appeals to a part of our nature that thinks we can manage it. Just give me the list. Show me what to do. What good deeds must I do to be saved? I will do them and I will crush it. And I will in so doing ensure my salvation. There's something appealing about that. It's attractive because we can just check all the boxes and we can manage our own progress. But here's the deal. When you look at the law of God, you quickly realize it is perfect. And it is perfect about every aspect of life and not only demands and requires that, that purity in external matters of life, but purity within your heart. And so inevitably, because we could never change what's going on inside, you start cherry picking the rules and you are tempted to then hide and minimize your faults. It's a game. Because if you live 
by rule keeping, you will die when you break them. It is a counterfeit gospel of legalism. And this crops up in the church often. You might be in this church and you meet someone say, yeah, yeah, reality venture, it's fine. But what you really need, but if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to follow all these specific rules. You're like, really? I do? It's a counterfeit gospel of legalism. It's a counterfeit gospel that often exists in more traditional cultures. If you just follow the rules of our community and get in line with our tradition, you know, then, then you can be saved. But it's all a counterfeit. It can never save you. It's the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping. But some might say, well, I have no interest in keeping the rules. Well, this next one's for you. It's the counterfeit gospel of rule breaking. Because as we have learned, yes, there were these legalists, these Judaizers, Paul calls them, but then there's also just the culture of Crete, which we have learned thus far in this study that there was a rebellious streak in Crete based in large part on the myths that they believed about the the Greco-Roman gods like Zeus, who was a liar. And so Paul addresses Cretan culture with these very kind words in verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Paul, can you say that? Well, he did. Now, we'll see in a moment that there was a particularly religious expression of Cretan culture that Paul corrects. But in verse 12, he's making a general statement about them. And he does so by quoting a well-known and highly esteemed Cretan philosopher, most likely from the 6th century BC. And it is so unflattering, but he gets away with it by saying, hey, I'm just quoting one of your own. Like, don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. But in many ways, this was a description of how often people lived. We don't need your rules. We will break your rules. We're not interested in the laws of of your God. We're going to go against them. And as he notes in the last part of that quote, it's about following your appetite. There are so many connections to the culture today. For we are often told, in fact, it's, it's often preached, that our natural appetites, attractions, and desires are the only authority sources that matter. Doesn't matter what, what the rules tell you. Doesn't matter what tradition tells you. Doesn't matter what the Bible says. Follow your own desires. Whatever your heart wants, you should have unlimited access to do so. If you want to find your compass in the world, find it within. Whatever you want, follow it. Rid yourself of the tyrannical oppression of any kind of rules or traditions placed upon you. It will only kill you, but if you want to be free, fulfill your desires. I find that this is often the plot line for a lot of films that are popular in culture. In fact, I noted this last week in an article that a lot of the films that are up for Academy Awards, the, 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 the hidden villain is usually institutional Christianity. It's the hidden villain of, of many plot lines. Oppressing 
people who would otherwise be free if they could just fulfill whatever desires they wanted to do. Now, this is often sexual desire, but it could also be related to career and ambition or other moral or ethical areas of life. But the point is, you need to break away from those things. If you want it, you should have every opportunity to get it. And if you do, we're promised, you will be set free. How often do we hear those narratives like, like, oh, I just want to be free. It's like offering salvation by being told to follow my own affections. But friends, that statement is a counterfeit. Because whatever you naturally desire, what does that even mean? What does it mean that I naturally want something? Because my natural tastes and desires and affections and appetites have been shaped by all kinds of things throughout the course of my life and are very much a product of where I was raised, the specific culture that I lived in, the people that were around me in my life, the other influences, all of these things have impacted my quote-unquote natural desires. And then it's a moving target because my desires have often changed throughout my life. So one could be contradictory. And if we're really honest, we have competing desires all the way down to the bottom of our heart. I want this, but I want that. I want security, but I want freedom. I want to do this, but I want to do that. I want one lover, but I want to experiment. I want one job, but I have no, you know, I, I want to be able to be free to explore everything else in life. Like we have competing desires. If we're honest, we have competing desires all the way down to the bottom of our hearts. I mean, this happens on a daily basis, like when you drive in California, right? I want to be a good, upright, and just citizen. But when someone cuts me off, like I'm going to destroy them. So which one is me? Tim, just follow your heart. I'm like, Okay, I shall, I shall destroy them. <laughs> like, which one, ha, on which moral high ground do I stand and look down and say, this desire should be celebrated, this one should be excommunicated? If we're honest, our hearts are full of contradictory and competing desires. So this whole idea of just break the rules and you'll be free is a counterfeit. It is a counterfeit. But then there's a third category. So there's the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping. There's the counterfeit gospel of rule breaking. But then, interestingly, there is a counterfeit gospel of rule making. So here, Paul now addresses a different angle on these counterfeits. Not just the legalists who tried to justify themselves through their own keeping of the law of God. Nor is he just addressing Cretan culture who said we don't care about the rules at all but those who through their own commands and rituals believed that they could purify themselves and so he uses the phrase human commands in verse 14 and 15 he says rebuke them so that they will pay no attention to jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth to the pure all things are pure but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. See, there was a mix happening in that 
culture. Certain rituals were taught as though they were necessary for purity, as though they were necessary for true and complete living. Like if I just, if we create a new list of rules and rituals, and if I follow it, I can self-purify, which has so many connections to our culture today. There are so many, you know, popular authors or Instagram influencers who are proposing their new list of rules to follow. And if we follow these rules and order our lives according to these rituals, we can then be pure. So the world is like, you know, this place where I'm naturally good, but if I can just exfoliate all of these like impurities and toxins out of my life, I can be free. And essential oils will get me there. <laughs> if, I just, <laughs> if I just follow these particular rituals, then I will be free. Now, I'm not throwing essential oils under the bus, but on a more serious note, oftentimes these things are presented as the most important things in your life. People treat them as such, like this is going to save your life. You're naturally good. You just need to purify. You just need to cleanse. And here are the tools and here are the rules that you need to do so. And people will spend millions and millions and millions of dollars in this nation to try to purify themselves in that way through these rituals and these human rules so that they can truly be free. But Paul's point here, like we, we can all make fun of what we see on the surface, but underneath there is a very powerful message that many people believe. I just need to get rid of the, the toxins, whether it's toxic people or just toxic things, whether my mind, my body, my spirit. But the idea is if I just try hard and if I follow this path, I will be free. I will be saved. But Paul's point here is that if that's what we're believing, then we have a wrong understanding of purity. We have a wrong understanding of purity. See, there are many people in that culture, like there are many in our culture, that believe by going through the motions, performing the rituals, following these man-made rules, that we can make ourselves pure. But this assumes that we are naturally pure. We just happen to do some bad things or have some toxic elements in our lives. Contrast that with the teaching of Jesus Christ, who famously said that what defiles a person does not come from the outside. What defiles a person comes from the inside. I can't think of a more countercultural message than that. He says, what defiles you isn't what comes from the outside in, it's what happens from the inside out. So transformation must include a new nature. Transformation must include a new heart. Because if we're not pure at the very core of who we are, then no amount of ritual or human rules will ever make a difference. Now, to be sure, these, these rituals and rules can produce an appearance before men, but never an acceptance with God. It is a counterfeit. And it is important to note that all three of these categories are counterfeits. The counterfeit gospel, 
of rule-keeping to salvation, the counterfeit gospel of rule-breaking to salvation, the counterfeit gospel of rule-making to salvation. All three are counterfeits, and all three express themselves in our culture today. There are parts of our culture more traditional that appeals to tradition. And then there's another part of our culture that appeals to experience or group identity or lived experience. And then there's those who appeal to human ingenuity and creativity. But whenever they're presented as the solution to our problems and our salvation, it's a counterfeit gospel. In fact, I've just recently read a book called Strange Rights by a woman named Tara Isabella Burton, who makes a case in her whole book that contrary to popular belief, America is not less religious. America is more religious than ever. But her point is that there are new civil religions, she calls them. And here's her summary. She says, by this definition, the modern atavistic right who are kind of appealing to tradition and Darwinian human nature, the progressive left, and the more centrist techno-utopians, that's Silicon Valley, all can be considered pagan ideologies, which see the sacred within the world itself. The techno-utopians may locate that sanctity within human intelligence, the social justice movement within human emotion, the atavist right with human DNA, but all three of our new civil religions envision the ultimate good for some or for all within the world rather than beyond it. And friends, that is where Christianity is absolutely unique. What we are saying is that nothing within this human world, nothing among human ability can ever save you. Only Jesus, the Son of God, who's come from outside of our world, to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf, to rise again on our behalf. He is the only one who can save, and any other belief system that denies it is a counterfeit and will never save you. So church, it's important that in critiquing counterfeits, you've got to critique all three. Because conservatives who only ever critique progressives, they imply that, well, the conservative counterfeit is, is okay. Or on the other hand, progressives that only try to correct the conservatives, they imply by default that their version is okay. But whenever any of these, whether it's on the left or on the right or somewhere in the middle, whenever these ideologies are being presented as though that's what really matters and that's what can save us, it's a counterfeit because they all claim some kind of human ability to save it. They're saying, we've got to focus on what can happen inside the world. The Christian is the man or woman who distinctly says, no, 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 no. We can talk about these things. They're important to talk about, but our salvation comes from outside of this world and his name is Jesus Christ. That is the message that we proclaim. And we need to talk about counterfeits in the way that the Bible talks about counterfeits. Whether it is through rule-keeping, rule-breaking, or rule-making, when they're presented as the good news, you have encountered a counterfeit. And the reason it's important to mention that is the second point. Counterfeits are dangerous. They are dangerous. And that is why Paul writes in the way that he does. They're everywhere. That's the first point in every aspect of culture. And they are dangerous. 
Why? Because counterfeits claim to set you free when in fact they enslave you. They must be confronted for their danger to others and their danger to your own soul. See, the groups that Paul is addressing here, they're not made of, up of people who've merely made some mistakes. They're actively and deliberately turning away from the truth. And so Paul gives us several reasons why we must confront counterfeits. The first is that counterfeits disrupt community. We passed over it briefly, but in verse 11, notice the impact that Paul notes. They must be silenced, he says, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Whenever we become our own self-salvation project, or we believe in a counterfeit gospel that we must preach to others, it fosters this this salvation through earning and rule-keeping or rule-breaking, a standard. It breeds comparison, jealousy, envy, strife, arrogance, and condemnation. You either set your own rules and you bind everyone according to them, or you break them and you don't like the people who follow them, and you begin to create all these divided groups. And it disrupts whole households. See, counterfeits, when it comes to our relationships, they not only fail to build people up, they actually break people apart. I'm sure many of us have seen this happen within our own lives, within our groups, even in the church at times. People get so passionate about an ideology over Jesus Christ. You know what it leads to? It doesn't lead to righteousness. It leads to division and disruption because it's an idol when you've put it over Jesus It disrupts community. Secondly, counterfeits distort the conscience. He says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. See, when you buy in to a counterfeit and you continue to live in line with a counterfeit, you lose your ability to discern between good and evil. You just shut it down. You've just, you've bought in like hook, line, and sinker. You've, you've swallowed the bait. You're, you're in. And so when someone corrects or challenges, maybe even has a friendly argument, you just, you shut down. And it then begins to color the way that you see every situation. This morally distorted judgment begins to show itself in your outward behavior. You're so convinced, like, no, this is the way, this is going to get me right. I can't listen to reason. I, I can't listen to this. And so, to use Paul's word, the conscience becomes corrupted. The mind becomes corrupted. And thirdly, that leads to the way you live, because counterfeits destroy character. The whole direction and the motivation is wrong. They claim to know God, in verse 16, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. It's so appealing to believe in a counterfeit because it has this appearance like, man, I'm, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the right things, especially for the legalist. Who on the outside, it looks like they've got every box ticked. 
But listen, friends, it needs to be said, going to church does not make you a Christian more than walking into a garage makes you a car. It's as simple as that. If you're just doing the things, singing the songs, give a little money, give of your time. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ and been born again and have a new heart and been cleansed from all your sin, you're believing in a counterfeit. And Paul's harsh words here are important because the stakes are so high. There are those who claim to know God. They've claimed to got the, they have the path. They have the light. This is the way to salvation. But if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, it's a counterfeit. And therefore, they've become detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There's a hypocrisy there that grows. They claim to know God, but in their works, they deny him. In pursuing false teaching, Paul says, you're living up to the reputation of Crete, which is all about lying. Paul's essentially saying, you are just like the very people that you think you're saving. That's the irony. And they become the exact opposite of what they were striving to be through their own rule-keeping, rule-breaking, or rule-making. But all of these, Paul says, they run in the opposite direction of the truth, and behind them, they leave a trail of death that he describes as detestable, as disobedient, and unfit for anything that is good. Now, you might hear those words of Paul, and you think, that's so harsh. Why would Paul use such harsh words? Why would Paul confront? Why is there even the need to confront at all? Well, listen, underneath this confrontation is actually a positive motivation. Paul's motivation is not to confront these counterfeits in order to humiliate others or to feel better about himself, but to rescue people from error and to establish them in the truth. That is why Paul speaks in the way that he does. See, many of us, we don't like to be corrected. It's generally not a pleasant experience. Maybe there's a few of you here that you're like, I love correction. So later on today, you're going to go home. If you're married, you're going to ask your spouse like, hey, I know you have the list, right? You're the list keeper. Do you have a list for me? And your spouse is like, well, yeah. So she unfurls the scroll and begins to go line by line, precept by precept. And you're like, oh, yes, give it to me. Yep, more feedback, more feedback. Keep it coming. Yep, more correction. There might be a few of you in the room, you freakish humans who love being corrected, but most of us, it's generally not a pleasant experience. You're like, hey, um, just wanted to have this moment to have a coffee with you uh, to correct you. And you're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. And so oftentimes correction, because it's generally an unpleasant experience, it can feel like a contradiction of love. In fact, in our, our culture, it goes without saying that anytime someone challenges anyone else or their viewer tries to correct them, people just say, that's so unloving. Because we think that love equals affirmation and therefore that correction must mean that you hate me. But listen, according to the Bible, correction, when done in the right way for the right reason, is not a contradiction of love. It's an expression of love. It's that you care. You want people to be saved from error and walk 
in accordance with the truth. Correction, when done right, can be the very thing that sets people free if it points them to the truth. Paul doesn't say, rebuke them so that I will feel better about myself. See, some of you, we've talked about receiving correction, but some of you love to give correction. It's weird. You love it. You can't wait. You're like, oh, oh. there's error in that person's life and they go to second service. They sit on the left wing of the building and I will strategically place myself there so that I may correct them. I'm like, hey, I just want to let you know that you're wrong. And they're like, oh, okay, anything else? You're, like, you're wrong. No, that's all. That's all I had on my list. And you walk away just feeling so good about yourself. That's all what Paul is saying. It's not about him. It's not about you. It's about the person being restored. See, in the Bible, correction is never the goal. Restoration is the goal. Correction is a necessary means. Restoration is the end. And so it was for Paul. And it takes correction and compassion, and we need both. Well, how can that be done? How can it be done in my life? If somebody else is believing a counterfeit, how can I make sure that I'm not believing a counterfeit? Because they creep into the church, make no mistake. Well, that's the third point. Counterfeits are exposed by the truth. Paul says it plainly. In the same way that governments detect counterfeit bills and museums detect forgeries and avid writers and readers of spy novels can detect plagiarism. How do they all do it? By being so familiar with the real thing. It's as simple as that. I suspect many of us, we have our own hobbies and things that we're really into. That if there was an imposter or a counterfeit or a fake, you would detect it immediately. For example, I love musical instruments. As many of you know, I'm a guitar player. I love guitars. And there are times when I've seen things for sale where someone says, look at this. And they say, it's this year and it's made in this country. I'm like, no, no, counterfeit. It's a fake. It's a lie. How do I know? Because I'm so familiar with the real thing. I'm like, no, the hardware on it. Nope, can't be. It's a fake. For some of you, it's clothes or it's cars, whatever it is. The thing that you're so familiar with, that you love, you're into, you have intimate knowledge about, because of your love for that, the minute a counterfeit shows up, you're like, fake, I know it. I knew it from the first moment I saw it. It's not genuine. See, friends, the way to detect a counterfeit is by being intimately familiar with the real thing. There are a lot of counterfeit gospels out there. But notice the way in which the New Testament always directs us to deal with them is, yes, we address them, but that's never the goal. The way in which we address them is by being so familiar with the truth that we are then able to expose the counterfeit with the truth. John Stott, who we've quoted often who led All Souls Laying in Place in London for many, many years, said once that the best way to deal with an increase of false teachers is to multiply the number of true teachers. And I think we would all agree. The same goes for us. 
We need the multiplication of truth, which will not only expose counterfeits, but actually rescue those who have believed them. Notice the reverse point of Paul in this passage. Look at verse 16. They, the counterfeits, claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. Well, what's the solution, Paul? It's to know God. Not just to claim to know God, but to actually know God. Earlier on in the chapter, how do you counterfeit or how do you identify counterfeit gospel with sound doctrine? How do you detect a lie with the truth? And so here's what that means. There's two sides of the coin. And the first is this, we must see sin for what it truly is. If you want to detect counterfeits, make sure you're not believing them and others aren't believing them and that you're not preaching them, you need to see sin for what it truly is. See, every person should know that there's actually several ways that you can rebel against God and be lost. One is by breaking all of God's laws, of course, and denying that you need a savior. But another way to be lost is by trying to keep all of God's laws and be your own savior and never trust in the savior that he's provided for you. One looks more socially acceptable in certain cultures. Both are lost. Paul makes this point clear in his letters. We need to see sin for what it truly is. Listen, to confess when it comes to sin, it's not enough just to confess sinful acts. We need to confess our sinful condition. We need to confess that we, by nature and choice, are sinners, and therefore no amount of human ability or ingenuity could ever free us or save us. The problem that we have is found in our very nature. I not only do sinful things, I have a sinful condition. Listen, if you think that church is just about showing up and trying to like manage your sin, like sin management, and that you've got what it takes and you just need like a little pep talk, then you have bought into a counterfeit. The real thing is not only true, it is far better than these legalistic, moralistic, materialistic counterfeits that will only lead to despair, disappointment, and eternal destruction. But in seeing our sin for what it truly is, we are then set up for the other side of the coin to see our Savior for who he truly is. For only when you realize that you can never save yourself and that the problem's not out there with those people or that group or this part of the culture and that part of the culture, but inside, in me, in my heart, in my nature, then you will turn and look and hopefully receive the truth about Jesus. Because the way to expose a counterfeit is to be being intimately familiar with the truth. We need to know him. That's the reverse point of verse 16. We need to know him. The greatest safeguard against counterfeits is nearness to Christ. To be near him, to love him, to read his word, to invite the power of the Holy Spirit continually into your life, to fellowship with other people around him, to worship him. It's drawing near to Christ. That's what's going to expose the counterfeits. I say this because it's not as if Reality Ventura 
should be a watchdog whistleblower organization obsessed with counterfeits, but rather a group of men and women who are so focused on Jesus, so in love with Jesus, that all the counterfeits become immediately apparent. See, I know some leaders who, if I'm honest, are more interested in exposing counterfeits than they are in exalting Christ. But it's the other way around, friends. The greatest safeguard is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that we would make much of Jesus in our lives, that we would make much of Jesus in our friendships and our family and in our jobs and in our place when we gather together and and worship because Christ alone is our savior. Only he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Only he died on the cross for my sin and for the sins of us all. Only Jesus rose again from the dead to give us new life. And so our salvation is grounded in him. Our growth is empowered by him. He's the one that cleanses our conscience. His purity is what makes us pure. His faithfulness is what makes us faithful. It's his power that makes us fruitful. Counterfeits are always powerless to bring change. That's why Paul, when he wrote another letter to the Galatian church in addressing the counterfeit that they were believing in, the counterfeit of rule keeping, he says this, let me ask you, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you being made perfect by your own ability? See, many of us, we know we're justified by faith in Jesus, but then we think we can only grow by our own effort. We think, well, God will accept me if I grow. But friends, it's the other way around. God accepts you by grace, therefore you can grow. He makes a way for you in Jesus, empowered by the life of Jesus so that you can grow. So friends, we shouldn't be coming to worship today. And as we respond now, banging our fists saying like, I'm going to kill it this week, God. I'm going to show you. I'm going to double my list. I'm going to crush it. It's going to be so good because that's only focusing on what you can do. Or if you are just totally distraught because you're like, oh, I'm such a failure. You're still looking at yourself. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus because salvation does not come through willpower, but through God's power. Be free from the deception and the burden of counterfeits because only the grace of Jesus Christ provides what counterfeits promise but can never deliver. A clean heart a new start, and a transformed life. So our response today is like that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You can come today, don't bring anything with you before God. You come with an empty hand and a needy heart because Christ alone is the claim that a counterfeit will never make. But Christ alone is the claim that every Christian will always make. Amen? Let's make it now. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is the truth of him that reveals these counterfeits that will never save us and only burden us and deter us from life. God, I pray right now for anyone joining us here in this room or whether they're joining us online at home, I pray that you would free people from counterfeit gospels that will never save. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would identify any areas in our lives where we are believing a counterfeit gospel for our salvation or our growth. I pray for anyone who's never believed on Jesus Christ. I pray that today they would. Today, God, would you make yourself so real to them that even now they would say from their heart, Jesus, save me. Nothing else in this world could save me. I cannot save myself. Jesus, save me. I pray that they would believe and be saved. And God, I pray that even now, as we have the opportunity to do so in our service, that we would respond by drawing near to you. You've made a way for us. And that the greatest safeguard against counterfeits is nearness to Christ. And so I pray that we would respond and bring our burdens, our sins, our faults, to you, knowing that you will forgive us, cleanse us, make us new. So may we respond to that invitation now. In Jesus' name, amen.